This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people upon whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR and to the Gadigal people from whose land we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. It's funny how we talk about the natural world as a different place from the human world, isn't it? It's in our gut, but somehow we feel distant. Tonight I've found three people who love the remote and wild places. Here's Murray MacDonald diving off Wilson's Promontory. Yes, I dived all over the world, um, but uh, what probably what sticks in my mind most is when I first went to Victoria, working with the Victorian government, one of my first jobs was indeed to take a crew of scientists and technicians out and to survey the coastline of South Gippsland to identify areas which would be suitable for establishment of marine parks and reserves. This is uh, many years ago. Um, and I remember diving around Wilson's Promontory and diving down very steep granite rock face from the surface at Wilson's Promontory and getting down 15, 20 metres and then suddenly coming into this magnificent world of brilliant colours, yellows, purples, blues, oranges, and these were sponges and um, hard coral fans and, uh, and sea anemones and a whole range of other very strange and bizarre creatures, uh, at least they were to me at the time. And it just struck me that you don't have to go into tropical waters to coral reefs to get this fantastic diversity and colour of life in marine waters that I suddenly discovered when I first dived around Wilson's Promontory. It's there, it's everywhere. And, you know, for those who are able to do it, get out there and look because it's absolutely fascinating. Murray will talk to us later about extending marine protected areas. He says stopping emissions is the biggest gift we can give to the warming oceans where the kelp forests and corals are dying. And then James Watson, who's Professor of Conservation, will talk to us. But also he's someone who rediscovered the fabled night parrot. And I was wandering through this really thick spinifex, really no, as tall as me, thick spinifex, spiky as anything, walking around the edge of it. And this, this fledgling night parrot jumped out in front of me. I nearly had a heart attack. You know, I literally, I, I like, oh my God, that's a night parrot. And ra I literally kind of ran away. I mean, oh my God, what do I do? Like, what do, I do? And we took a photograph and then we watched it. We had, we had thermal imagery um, glasses. So we went back at night and watched it jump around. We saw the, the, the um, adult come down to feed the nestlings. And, you know, and, it's, and that, that nestling survived. It was great. You know, we know that that bird is now one of, of a small population. And as I said, it's, it's been wonderful because groups like Bush Heritage Australia have shown real leadership by funding the science needed to save the bird, getting the relationships going with farmers to actually get things going, buying the property that is, which had the main population. 
that's that's the thing that really it really gives me hope is that groups like that exist and and the farming community around there um embraced it they could have easily told us to go away you know it's a little green parrot who cares they want to farm cattle but they didn't they they went you know what this is part of our our land you know and this is part of our legacy so yep we'll, we'll help you james watson contributed to a paper in nature about protecting 30 percent by 2030 the report demands that indigenous and local people should be paid to protect nature on land and sea that much of the land that we want to protect should be really given back to native title owners so that they, with their much deeper and more detailed knowledge, should be given the chance to protect it as they know how. Professor John Wynowski is the third person to take us to wild places. We have interviewed him before, but this is an edited part of a talk he gave to the Australian Wildlife Conservancy. And I'll link the whole talk to the podcast. If you want to hear it, it's very worthwhile. But this is not going to be easy. Protecting biodiversity, we need to see our self-interest in it. Obviously, we don't easily do it on behalf of anyone else. Horrifying news this last week was a peaceful protest of two years standing of the Jabwarong people ended with 30 people arrested and the majestic sentinel tree felled. As Senator Lydia Thorpe said, the fact that the Jabwarong people have survived is one of the most extraordinary stories of resistance and survival anywhere that European colonisation has been inflicted on Indigenous peoples. And after the Jabwarong protest at the birthing trees near Ararat was stopped, she said, you couldn't kill us, so they'll kill everything else that keeps us alive. So protecting 30% by 2030 is a catchy idea, but until we see it as vital to our survival, we may not make it. at the 30% by 2030 idea tonight, that is protecting 30% of the world's biodiversity by 2030 on land and in the ocean. It's a minimum target and with us is Professor James Watson from University of Queensland. He's one of the authors of an October 7th article in Nature called Area-Based Conservation in the 21st Century. Welcome James. Thanks, thanks for having me. (laughs) <laughs> it's good you're in Queensland, aren't you? Where are you? I'm actually living in northern New South Wales, right on the Queensland oh. border. So, I, oh. yeah, I, I, got, I commute to University of Queensland a couple of days a week, but oh, my, okay. I live most of my life down in Byron Bay. Yeah. Oh, I see. All right, that situ- situates you then for us. Most of our listeners are in Melbourne or Sydney, so they can imagine where you are. Your paper starts with these magisterial words. Humanity will soon define a new era for nature. Would you describe for us the map you see of 2030? Look, this is a, a huge moment in conservation in terms of saving the world's biodiversity. Uh, it's, it happens every 10 years or so that all the nations come together and discuss the next 10 years of targets to try and achieve the 2050 vision that is all life on Earth living in harmony with each other. That, is, that, was, that was outlined in 1993 at the Rio Conventions and the, eight, the nations set up these strategic plans to get to this vision. Obviously, we're running out of time. Every 10 years move by, the nations set some targets 
and often don't meet them. And so we just get less and less um, room for, for biodiversity and, and nature and wildlife on the, on the planet. Um, the bulldozers is, are still happening. Um, there's still, still lots of habitat being destroyed and not much being protected. So why we say this is such an important moment is that it's, it's really the last moves of a chess game. And if we don't get this next 10-year plan right, we will have lost the chess game. There's no chance for us to actually bend the curve back for biodiversity. By 2030, it's probably well, well and truly too late for millions of species around the planet. As a professor of conservation science, I'd like you to take us back to when you were a Rhodes Scholar in Madagascar. And I want to know, want to know what hopes did you have then for big parts of geography to be reserved for protecting nature? Yeah, look, uh, I've always been very interested in nature. I was a bird watcher from a little boy. Um, um, weirdly, my first life was in, you know, working life was in the military. I was an army officer. I went through the Royal Military College, Duntroon, and the Australian Defence Force Academy. And I spent uh, a few years in the north of Australia working in the Australian Regular Army. I was lucky enough to get a Rhodes Scholarship to go to Oxford. And, and at that stage, I really wanted to really explore these more in nature and wildlife. But I wasn't a conservationist when I went to Madagascar, really. I, I love nature, but it was my time in Madagascar that I realised that you can't just observe nature and describe nature. You have to go and fight to save it because Madagascar is one of the most amazing places on the, country, uh, on the planet and yet it's being decimated by, um, yeah, by land clearing, often by uh, international companies. And, and the area I worked in was the southeast of Madagascar, I was working in a mining site run by Rio Tinto, which is, as you know, is owned by Australia. So I was actually working in a piece of the world that is, was getting decimated by mining um, and trying to do the best thing possible to try and save the last bits of habitat there for lemurs and for birds down there. And that really um, sparked my interest in conservation and, and, and land-based management and that, you, you, you know, it really was a wake-up call that you can't have your cake and eat it when it comes to these things. You've got to set land aside for nature, otherwise you won't have much nature left. What happened in Madagascar? Did you manage to preserve any of that land? The answer is no. I spent a lot of time doing research on habitat fragments in southeastern Madagascar that were then subsequently cleared, even though we found really amazing species of birds and lemurs, including things that were unknown to science, we couldn't save them. And it was real travesty and it made me think that we've got to actually do better not at the local scales but actually national scales and global scales because Madagascar is an interesting point in case it's one of the poorest countries in the world obviously wants mining development that's where you get revenue but it's also got one of the most incredible biodiversity uh, richness of all the nations as a mega biodiverse country it really made me think that we've got to actually set up systems so that Madagascar can develop in a way that is sustainable and actually is actually pro-conservation. And, we, and, that may, and that means targets around land-based conservation is critical in that we've got to reward good behaviour and then try and ensure that countries are compensated if they forego development for conservation. It must be an uncomfortable job being in your area with climate change nature to frantically adapt i've heard of many species really trying to frantically adapt to the subtle changes in climate change or big ones do you feel frantic oh look i think look let's face it it's it's doomsday for conservation wildlife conservation everywhere even if you don't take into account climate change we have lost an enormous amount of wildlife in just the last 30 to 40 years i'm 43 years old and i think since that time 
half the world's mammals have disappeared in terms of individual mammals. They've gone. That's what WWF has shown. You know, so we're losing biomass. We're losing the very numbers of species. It's very hard to actually make something go extinct. You've got to kill every single individual of a species. And yet, even still, we're making species go extinct. And in, not just in, in remote places, in poor countries like Madagascar, Australia is leading the way when it comes to species extinction. And, you know, we're losing frogs, we're losing skinks, we're losing bats. Um, there's mammals which are disappearing. And I find it extraordinary this is happening in 2020. So, yeah, it, it is frantic. It's, it's, it's actually, it's very depressing. And climate change throws another spanner in the works in that, yeah, these species that are already having lots of their habitat altered and now have to adapt to a rapidly changing climate. And many won't be able to unless humans jump in and do something. And that yeah. means moving them around. That, and that's, and that's, that's a real problem. Yeah. Well, you say that there are now well-established ways to incorporate climate change into conservation plans. And one of them, I noticed, was ecological connectivity. What does that look like in the frame of 30% by 2030? What amount of connectivity would you need to put in place? Look, it's, it's a really good question. And this, conce this concept of connectivity is very, very important for conservation under climate change. Species need to move around. But it means a few things. So as we know, if you, if you look around Australia, we know that different parts of Australia have been affected differently by humanity and that not just um, European history, but indigenous history as well. So connectivity means something very different in Cape York and Northern Australia and the great Western woodlands and the Kimberley to the grasslands outside Melbourne. There some areas in Australia are very highly fragmented and those places need to be connected up. These fragments, these species in these fragmented habitats need to be connected in a way that is sensible. When you think about uh, the great savannas of Northern Australia, um, or you think about the rainforests of Eastern, Eastern Cape York, they're already pretty connected, but a connectivity strategy there is keep them connected. That means don't clear areas um, now to disconnect them. So what it means in terms of the principles of, of achieving connectivity is lots of restoration in the Southeast and Southwest of Australia, and lots of proactive protected area management in the north, and especially indigenous management. Big areas given back to native title and given back to indigenous peoples to manage the land in the way they have been for at least 60,000 years. Yeah. Well, look, in July, I travelled back to Sydney via um, Bega, and I went in the bus from Victoria through these blackened forests right up the south coast of New South Wales, about four hours of damaged land. And I interviewed a Ewan man who was an expert in cultural land management at Bega. And he and many others were horrified that logging was still going on. And your paper says that Indigenous and local people need to be involved in protecting intact areas. That's a big part of your paper to request that. Have you seen this succeed somewhere in yes. the world? Yes. In Australia, we have some fantastic Indigenous management areas. So... Australia, it's a problem with Australia is that they're not well funded. The Australian government or the state governments don't fund them enough. But there's fantastic examples of land in the Kimberley and Northern Territory, um, in southwest and western Australia, even around Byron Bay. There's national parks that are co-managed in ways that are respectful to Indigenous burning and things like that and have good biodiversity outcomes. They're just not funded well enough. But overseas, it's a critical strategy. If you go to the, most of the Amazon is, is either protected area or indigenous lands. Where, where, the, where the forests still stand in Amazon is where indigenous people still live. That's the critical fact. So if you want, you want outcomes 
to keep intact forests intact, you've got to actually encourage indigenous ownership and, 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 and right back to land. And, that's, and we see that as an incredibly important strategy for safe, safeguarding nature. And it's not just in, in the Amazon. We see it in Central Africa as well, in Madagascar, even in Canada and places like that. It's, it's, in, it's, it's First Nations people leading the way in trying to protect their link to, to country and at the same time getting biodiversity outcomes. So we've got governments partly responsible, Indigenous giving back to Indigenous and local people. What about private money buying up degraded land and keeping out the ferals and restoring wildlife? There's a few examples of that here. Do you, can you tell us, describe some good examples you've seen, maybe in other countries? Look, it's, I think so. Private landowners have a huge responsibility and an industry as well because they own a lot of the land and they have the resources to actually, in some cases, to do the right thing. And we see around the world excellent um, uh, management of, of species. So a really good example is um, wolves in North America. Uh, wolves have bounced right back. They really were a, um, a species that was on the blink of extinction uh, 100 years ago, but with appropriate land management inside protected areas and be around those surrounding areas, you've seen wolves bounce back because deer populations have bounced back and, and bear populations have started to spread out again. This divide between it's a conservation outcome or a development outcome. We see this kind of false binary that is presented to us as you've got one choice. You either make money and get jobs or you save the environment. In most cases, 95% of the cases, it's both things are completely compatible if you do the right thing. It's just that it's just a little bit hard to do the right thing and often private industry just want to do a quick and dirty job, which means they're doing the wrong thing, you know, and it's going to, you know, they want to make more money. So, uh, you know, a key message around land management is you can, it won't cost the earth to um, reward the good behaviour and it actually wouldn't hurt to actually call out and actually punish the bad behaviour because that's, the, both things aren't happening right now. Uh, this is a climate action <laughs> program, so I want to get back to climate. I can see conservation's got so many problems anyway, like land clearing. These are the things that uh, are within our capacity to deal with, but climate change is running away. And uh, I'd like you to know, when you laid those climate projections over some of your maps of the present world protected nature reserves, what did you see there? So when we, when we start thinking about the impacts of climate change, we see that the current global protected area network is nowhere near big enough. So what it means is you need a really big expansion of area, land, area of land under protection. But a critical point that needs to be made around this stuff is that it's not just for, a lot of this land is not just simply for species adapting to climate change. We know that 30% of the climate uh, solution is in natural regeneration and intact forests and vegetation sequestering and storing carbon 30 percent one third of all the problem can be solved by just keeping your land intact and managing it for natural outcomes so there's co-benefits which is enormous if you if we set an agenda to save 30 percent of the world um, especially those last intact bits that has a huge climate benefit because it's got a huge carbon benefit so, you know, what the argument is, is that actually it's a, it's a win-win situation in many places. And many of these places that are still largely intact are intact because they are still at the frontier of development, which means we still have time because we've got to remember restoration costs a lot of money, up to 10 to 20 times more than protection. And, and, it's, and it takes a long time to happen. Where protection, you get the immediately, immediate benefits. Yeah, well, I can see, I can hear the urgency in your voice. And I've recently learned that there are about half a million viruses 
that exist in birds and mammals that could infect humans. And I think the, the pandemic, we've heard a lot of politicians politicising this whole thing, and they like to blame the wildlife trade to the exclusion of all other things. But there's also climate change and um, you know, it's forcing migrations of animals is one thing. And land clearing, as you've described in the Amazon and Borneo and other very tropical biodiversity hotspots. And I wonder, do you think our global pandemic wake-up call will maybe transform our relationship with nature? What yeah. the issue is with pandemics and, and what's happened with coronavirus and other, other, other zoonotic viruses, and there's been many of them in the last 50 years, this is not a unique situation. You know, you've got 15 years ago, you had swine flu. These had things happen because we've actually destroyed many, 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 many areas of native vegetation and, and put humans right next to the vectors that create, create these diseases. And when you fragment landscapes, you actually open up pathways for disease transmission. That has been shown for many different diseases, including malaria, including dengue fever. So not just zoonotic viruses, but there's a reason why a lot of these other diseases break out. It's because we've eroded the fabric of nature and, our, and put humans right on the front line. And that's where transmission occurs. So at a fundamental level, if we want to keep ourselves safe from pandemics, the most basic thing you can do is keep habitats intact. And guess what? If you do that, you get a climate benefit because you get your carbon benefit and you get a conservation benefit because wildlife needs intact habitats. So there's a three-win solution there straight off the bat. Precautionary principle, no regret strategy, just keep these intact habitats intact and you're reducing risk of further climate change, further disease and biodiversity collapse. Oh, well, you've put it all in an absolute nutshell for the listeners here, James. So one of the reasons why I still do this job is that there's still definite, you know, areas of hope and happiness. And, you know, and, and one of the things that I, I do love doing is going to remote places and finding things that haven't been seen for a while or, or yeah, or um, documenting, you know, new, new, new things that wildlife is doing. And, so the, the thing that has been a highlight recently was I um, was lucky enough to find the first nesting night parrot in Australia, um, you know, which the first nesting night parrot that has ever been described, actually. This is a bird that disappeared for basically 100 years. Um, it was rediscovered in 2013. And, and we now have a local population which has been well managed by Bush Heritage Australia and I'm, I'm involved with the science there. So that, that is extremely exciting to come across a bird that was lost for 100 years. When I was a little boy, I'd look at the Birds of Australia, the bird book, and just look at this page, Night Parrot, cause then, you know, and just wondered, will I ever see it? Because we knew that they're probably there. It's just, you know, but no one can actually find them. So it's this kind of mythical, enigmatic bird. And so to, to be involved with that discovery was just incredibly exciting. Um, and it's, it's hopeful because that night parrot population was found on farming land, not in protected area land, on farming land. And the farmers and the green organisations such as Bush Heritage Australia um, got together and made a plan to save the species. And the species is bouncing back. The population is coming back because of that proactive behaviour between farming and, and, and green NGOs. So that's in Western Queensland and it shows that it doesn't have to be a battle. It shows that people can work together. You know, you can get your farming outcomes and your biodiversity outcomes if you just realise that actually we can coexist if we're just able to trade off a few things. And, um, um, you know, and, and that's been really 
a really lovely story to be involved with because it, it gets away from this doom and gloom of loss yeah. and this whole thing that it's, it's nature or the economy. It's not. It's not in most cases. What does it look like? The night parrot. So it's, it's uh, a little uh, like a really fat, um, very dark green budgie, probably twice <laughs> the size. But it's, it's, a remar- it's a remarkable bird. It's a nocturnal parrot, which is extraordinarily rare in the global world. In fact, I think it's the only noct- pure nocturnal parrot. And, it's, and as I said, it's, it's a species that was just lost. In the 1850s and 60s, they were finding loads of them. And by 1920s, we'd lost them. No one could find them anymore. And they were presumed extinct. Um, and then there was these kind of sightings that people would claim over the years, but no one could ever go back to them. No one could ever take someone else to go see the bird. So people would claim a night parrot, but no one could see it again. And therefore, all the records were not verified, so they weren't believed. It was only until 2013 that someone was able to find a night parrot, take a photo of it, and then show other people the night parrots. We've been listening to Professor James Watson from the University of Queensland. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show at Radio 3CR and Radio Skid Row. To get us into a nautical mood, here's a song by David Harbottle from Totnes. It's called Gaudete, Rejoice. Oh, come all you sailormen, row your boats in, for the seas they are icy, the shore calls you in. Fishermen lay your nest down The lights and warmth beckon Gaudete shouts the town All around this old harbour The voices resound Words of peace and goodwill Go to all who are found The feast will be royal is with us from the Bega Valley. He's a scientist with experience in fisheries and aquatic living resources. So welcome, Murray. Thank you, Vivian. In one way, the increasing number of marine protected areas in the world, I think, is a good news story. Is that right? 
It is. It is. Um, I spent many years working with both uh, marine protected area management and fisheries management uh, in my former career. And I'm thoroughly convinced that properly done protected area management or place-based management, as the um, experts call it, is a very effective tool in looking after particular uh, organisms, but also communities of organisms and in to some extent protecting ecological processes. So I, I'm a fan of the tool, but it has to be done right. Tell us some examples just to give us the scope of it. For example, in Antarctica, around Hawaii, I think there's some very big protected areas. Tell us the scale of them. Okay. Probably the two largest ones in the world that I'm aware of is our own Great Barrier Reef, which uh, is some millions of hectares in extent and has been around now for 40 plus years. And one which was more recent is in Hawaii, which is part of the US, of course, uh, in which the outer islands of Hawaii, the waters of those islands were placed under protected area management and the total area protected uh, was of the order of half a million square miles. And that was established in 2018. Both of those examples are within national jurisdiction waters. When you start talking about international waters, things get a bit more complicated. In Antarctica, we are very lucky to have had a treaty signed by 20 or 30 nations interested in Antarctica way back in the 60s, which basically reserves Antarctica for scientific exploration and use. More recently been discussions going on between a number of countries about establishing large parts of Antarctic marine waters as a marine park or reserve, but uh, as yet that hasn't been formally concluded and announced. When we say protected, I imagine people dashing about in speedboats, you know, fighting off pirates or something, but what, that's not the right picture. What, what is protection and what does it involve? I think in the paper that we've both read and we're going to interview one of the authors, they said it's insufficient, the protection is insufficient and you'd need billions to staff this. But what would the staff do? So the first thing we need to understand is that Place-based management, that is marine protected areas, are designed specifically to protect whatever's in that area from direct impacts. For instance, in marine waters, the impacts could be the impact of fishing, not only on the targeted fish stocks, but also the physical impacts of fishing on the bottom habitats of the marine waters. It could also protect against people dumping pollutants into uh, these areas. Uh, if they're adjacent to land areas, then there could be some controls on what is allowed to be drained into those areas. Basically, you're trying to stop whatever is having a detrimental impact on that area, which is a direct impact. The reference to needing to have other tools is to do with the fact that in many cases, particularly in marine environments, impacts in a particular area often originate in different areas, sometimes quite a long way away. And in the context of climate change, for instance, if we have regional or even global weather patterns changing, then changes in water temperature, changes in uh, current patterns can originate many, many hundreds, thousands of kilometres away from the area that you're trying to protect. And if we don't take different types of measures to try and address those impacts, 
then you can't stop them from affecting the area that you've protected. The only thing my father brought back to me from the Second World War, I remember as a child he had a big shell and he said it came from Moritai. That's where he was during the war. And I've just been researching this and I found that around Moritai, the Indonesians have three new marine protected areas of 200,000 square kilometres. And I wonder how would they protect those waters? One of the things, examples they gave was smaller boats, not allowing fishermen to have big, big ships and big boats. So it's to keep it low, small scale. But what else would you do to protect 200,000 square kilometres? Lack of adequate resourcing is a significant problem in a lot of these areas. It depends on, as I said before, what kind of negative impacts you're trying to deal with. If the impacts are primarily from large-scale fishing operations, particularly from, say, trawl nets, which are dragged along the bottom of the ocean and disturb the bottom and catch a lot of unwanted fish or other marine life, then the way to stop that is to restrict or ban that kind of fishing in particular areas. But any such restrictions or controls or bans to be effective require adequate resourcing to either monitor directly on the water or remotely using satellites, position location equipment and so forth. And so one way or another, there are resources needed to both ensure that the restrictions are complied with and if necessary, to pursue those who insist on infringing on these rules and regulations. And so the effectiveness of these areas then becomes one of adequate resourcing. Yeah. So we've talked about different threats to the marine environment, but climate change is the big one. And I imagine in your career, that must have started to rear up as an additional headache and almost the impossible thing to protect from. And I wonder how it's unseen. You know, the ocean's just out there, but we don't see the effects of climate change. We know about the coral bleaching, that's visible. But what else is known to you about the effects of climate change on the marine environment? Well, I dived uh, and fished uh, in southeastern Australian waters, particularly Victorian waters, where I came from, for many, many years. And amongst the things that I noticed were that large brown kelps, big brown seaweeds that used to be prolific around um, the southeast coast of Australia and, and along the um, southern part of the New South Wales coast, uh, are now disappearing and in some places have gone entirely. Now, these kelps uh, prefer cooler water. And because the East Australia current, which comes down the east coast of Australia, is a warm water current, it's becoming stronger and more persistent. And so these kelps can't persist where they have been in the past. So that's one thing. Another thing which has become clear to me has been um, observing a citizen science program, which is called REDMAP, which involves citizens along the coastline of Australia who are frequent visitors to the coastline, fishermen, divers, photographers, who, if they notice something they haven't seen before, photograph it and upload it to a website where a team of scientists can identify the species of particularly fish or other animals, and they can uh, then say whether or not these are new reports for a particular area. 
And over 20 years of this program going, the number of what used to be tropical fish species, which were virtually never seen down the far south coast of New South Wales or into Bass Strait, uh, are now regular visitors and some of them are even uh, overwintering, that is, they're there all year round. So we're seeing a change towards more tropical type fish species from that citizen science program. Temperatures warming in the ocean, which of course is climate change. We, we interviewed Tim Flannery about um, two years ago about his book, Sunlight and Seaweed, and he seemed to have a great hope about kelp. But I think this was out in international waters, like kelp farms out in international waters. Have you had any theories about that as a, I mean, because kelp also sequesters carbon? Yeah, true. It's, it's a plant, which means that it's uh, taking up CO2 and producing oxygen and other nutrients. So it's actually sequestering carbon, just like trees in forests do. And indeed the microscopic organisms in the water, the phytoplankton, they also do that. And indeed the phytoplankton in the marine oceans contribute a huge proportion of the total oxygen available in the atmosphere to the world. But coming back to uh, the seaweed question, yeah. yes, there is huge potential for farming of kelp uh, in offshore areas uh, to uh, sequester huge amounts of carbon. The main issue at the moment is how do we scale it up to be large enough and in the right locations to make it an effective tool for drawing carbon out of the atmosphere. What positive signs do you see in marine conservation in terms of the service to the climate that the ocean performs? <laughs> it's more, much more difficult to see how things are changing in the water than it is on land. It's much easier to see when you've protected something, when you're doing something on land, it's easier to see. I think as this paper that you're discussing will tell you, we actually need to greatly ramp up the area of protected marine waters uh, and estuarine waters in order to try and maintain the ecological processes, which include those plants which are sequestering carbon. Also, they will be very useful in helping to try and stabilise some of the larger ocean ecological processes such as currents. At the same time, if we are not doing what we need to do to tackle climate change, i.e. stopping emitting carbon, then place-based management is only going to have a limited effect in maintaining biodiversity and maintaining stable ecosystem processes. In the report, they suggested that one good way to scale this up is to get local people and Indigenous people to be part of the decision-making process and part of the um, management. And I know that's on land. You can have a lot of Indigenous people, especially down your way, the UN people I've spoken to, very, very keen to do much more cultural management of the, the forest that you've just experienced huge bushfires through. They would like to get in there and do that detailed and cautious work that they that they know about. But what about in the marine world? Island community, like Pacific Island communities, for example, are they? They have made use of, coexisted with these resources for thousands, tens of thousands of years, and they have a lot of knowledge about how to make use of these resources without over-harvesting or having a negative impact. I think we all have a lot to learn 
from them, not only on the land in terms of things like cultural burning, but also in the water in terms of when are appropriate times to harvest certain organisms and ensuring that we don't do harm to the environment which supports these organisms. So I think particularly in, in inshore, close to, uh, close to shore areas, if we're going to consider prote protected area management and there are local communities who uh, consider these areas to be important or even sacred, we must involve those people in the establishment and management of those areas not only for, from the point of view of ensuring uh, protection of those areas, but from the point of view of ensuring that their cultural attachment to those areas is maintained. Just to finish, what would you like to tell listeners? You know, a lot of people that will listen to this will have been part of campaigns to stop Adani or to stop, you know, coal seam gas you know, the the COVID recovery, the gas-led recovery. A lot of people will be quite informed about all of that. But the connection to the ocean, what would you like to tell people to, to give us a bit of energy? Because you, you can't fight warming waters of that vast scale. All I can say is climate change is global. Fighting to stop uh, putting carbon into the atmosphere in whatever way you can, however small or large, whether it's uh, your own, uh, the way you live your own life, or whether you join campaigns such as Stop Adani to try and stop more fossil fuels being burnt. To me, that is the critical issue. The benefits of achieving that will be seen in the ocean as well as on the land. But at the same time, for those who love the oceans in particular and who want to see fish communities and kelp communities protected, campaigning to have more protected areas is also very, very important. And for me, I've had a fabulous life as a professional scientist, uh, looking at all these amazing ecosystems in large part of the world. I campaign now for climate action not for my benefit, but for the benefit of my children and their generation and future generations, because if we don't achieve this, their future doesn't look too flash. So for me, we all have to keep uh, pushing. Climate change to me is the central issue, but don't forget that there are other tools which can help to protect biodiversity and to protect our large ecosystems on the planet. So please, don't give up hope. We're all in this together and let's keep fighting. Yeah, thank you very much, Murray. Now, Professor John Wynarski will talk to us about extinctions, bushfires and the Australian Wildlife Conservancy. We started with government protected land and marine areas, 30% needed by 2030, but the AWC shows how private investment and landowners with wildlife corridors are playing a big part. Professor John Wynarski. Uh, John is a professor at the Research Institute of Environment and Livelihoods at Charles Darwin University. He's one of Australia's preeminent ecologists and conservation biologists with a career spanning decades, I won't say how many, <laughs> including many years working as an ecologist in remote parts of Northern Australia, uh, where he's documented a dramatic decline in native mammals. 
Yeah, look, you can't understand Australian ecology without getting some understanding of Indigenous perspectives of the land and how it works. I um, spent about 10 years at university doing my studies of the environment. I was a, a slow student or I had too many other distractions, so it took me a long time. So by the time I sort of um, graduated, I thought I knew ecology really well. Um, but I went to Northern Australia then and working with Indigenous communities and uh, people on the ground, you know, my knowledge was minimal compared to their understanding, appreciation of the environment and how all the pieces fitted together. Um, so I was a babe in, babe in the woods um, compared to that depth of that knowledge, that understanding of country and how all the bits fit fitted. Um, it's not only the understanding of the country, but it's also, I guess, our place in the world and our responsibilities for nature. Um, Western society is not so good on that moral question about um, why we're on, why why we're here, and what we're responsible for, um, and our fit into the world. Whereas Indigenous communities um, and knowledge is very much about ensuring that there's been a, an un unbroken chain of responsibility for a country. Um, and it's very much part of one's existence is to give back to country, give back to the land and ensure that it remains healthy, productive, diverse and beautiful. And, you know, I think all Australians need to get that message. It's really critical. We can't live in this country without a better appreciation, understanding and respect for Indigenous culture. And that is that we depend upon nature um, for the air we breathe, for the quality of the air we breathe, for the quality of the water we drink. Uh, and for our food resources, it's really important that nature is diverse and bountiful and productive. Um, my, what guides most of my work is that I want to leave the world, or at least I want to do everything I can to leave the world to my children and their children in a manner which is as beautiful and diverse and productive as that which I've inherited. And I think, you know, most people feel that they've got a sense of responsibility of passing on an unblemished legacy to their, their descendants, and that should include an intact biodiversity. Um, but we're losing biodiversity in Australia, um, not only of mammals, but also reptiles, frogs, fish, plants, invertebrates. There's a whole gamut of species that are in trouble and we can't afford to be so biased in our treating of nature that we're looking only over those that uh, people care the most about. You know, we can care. There's some fantastic reptile species in Australia, frilled lizards, some incredible snakes, um, some uh, bizarre geckos, um, some, you know, many of these species are really distinctive, really interesting. The Australian reptile faunas, 95% of them occurs nowhere else um, than in Australia. So it's a part of our obligation to look, to look after this country. So we did a review um, in the last couple of years that looked at the thousand odd species of Australian uh, snakes and lizards and figured out what their conservation status was and far more than we thought previously were in trouble uh, and meriting listing as, as threatened. And many of these um, uh, are getting almost no conservation attention at the moment. So on the current trends, many of these species, we estimate about five to 10 will become extinct within 20 years if um, we don't do something about them in, in the near future. So yeah, we must care about all parts of nature and, and um, 
reptiles are one of those parts that are particularly needing more attention at the moment. Cats and foxes are important for important threats to reptiles, um, but also many of these reptile species that are most imperiled um, happen to only occur in really small areas, so they're really vulnerable both to land clearing and to climate change and to fires as well. AWC is the Australian Wildlife Conservancy. They buy up land, fence out feral cats and foxes, and they have a team of scientists always monitoring as the landscape and life is restored. Many of our mammals, happily the ones that have survived, the ones that aren't extinct, um, would, be, would be extinct by now were it not for interventions um, by AWC and others. Um, so we would have lost more species of mammal um, were it not for these places that, where cats and foxes have been kept out. Um, so um, across 99% of Australia or more, um, cats are uh, operating freely in the landscape and exerting that toll on wildlife. It's only in places such as some islands and in those exclosures, those fenced areas such as AWC sanctuaries that many Australian mammal species can actually get refuge. And those sanctuaries are critical um, for not only the conservation of those species, but also for an appreciation of what Australia nature looks like or could look like. You go into a sanctuary with AWC where there are no cats and it's just bounteous wildlife in many places. So you see Australia as it was a hundred years ago and as it could be in the future with intact uh, animal populations. You go outside the fence and you know that you, there might be some kangaroos and not much else in terms of native mammals. Um, so it's the remarkably remarkable places where you can open your eyes to what Australia conservation and nature should look like. Mm. Um, so they're really important places, I think. And many species um, would not persist were it not for those sanctuaries. We're listening to Professor John Wanowski. Now he talks about the recent mega bushfires. So I've got a bit of skin in the game. My house was burnt in wildfires and the Ash Wednesday fires and I lost everything I owned at the time. Um, so my sympathies to anyone who is on, online at the moment who has lost um, possessions or family or friends in these fires and my regards to those who helped fight those fires and have helped re recover nature in many of those burnt landscapes. Uh, my understanding of these fires, that they burned about 12 million hectares in um, southern and eastern Australia across from August last year until about March this year, um, which is an un unprecedented amount of burning in that those regions. But the, the fires were also distinctive, unusual and exceptional in that they um, burnt with extreme severity um, and over a, such a large extent um, so that in many cases there were very few unburnt refu refuge areas, patches left within the fire scar area. Um, our analysis suggests that about 300 or so threatened species um, had part or all of their populations and habitat and distribution affected by these fires. And no other single event in my lifetime has had such a drastic and dramatic and severe impact on biodiversity than these 2019-2020 wildfires. So it's been an extraordinary um, detriment to conservation in Australia. And many, in many cases, um, gains in made by recovery teams and people on the ground working to conserve nature over the last 20 years or so were set back really severely by these fires. Um, the fires affected, the fires 
burnt the entire range and known population of some species that happen to occur in really small areas. So we don't know whether they've caused extinctions yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if they had. Um, but the fires also burnt so some also really severely affected some species such as yellow belly glider, which have got extensive ranges from southeastern Australia all the way up to Queensland. You know, we'd have thought those species would be secure and safe um, because of that vast distribution and their large population sizes, but at least 30% of the distribution and population of those species uh, of yellow belly glider was affected by these fires. And that species is a good example, the yellow belly glider. It's a beautiful animal, um, but not only that, um, it's really slow reproduces. It's got one or two young per year. It needs really big areas of intact, unburnt forest. Um, it's dependent upon tree hollows. So my estimate is that it will take many decades, if not hundreds of years, for the population size of that species to recover to the level it was 12 months ago, simply because of the fires. You know, it's set back uh, conservation for that species hundreds, well, probably hundreds of years, if not, if not more. And it's not only that single fire event. What's happening is that um, the driven by uh, droughts, increased temperatures, ultimately by climate change, the incidence of such severe fires will increase in the future. So there'll be less time between successive fires, less time for species to recover. Um, and what, you know, it, the fires have been really devastating for Australian wildlife, but they also present an opportunity for us as a society to actually recognise that how hell, if we keep going the way we're going, there's a dystopia ahead um, of real major environmental disaster and disaster for our society and for our, our economy as well. So we do need to take the opportunity provided by these fires to actually ensure that we are doing something about reducing our emissions and battling climate change at a, a local, national and global level. The silver lining for, um, from these fires was that um, there was such extraordinary unprecedented, I think, public hurt and concern about wildlife and the impacts of the fires on nature. And so many people willing to donate money and their time and their efforts um, to help in that recovery efforts. It was unprecedented and uh, it gave us, I guess, a sense of reassurance that nature actually does mean something to our community. Um, and not only that, but Australian nature is really important for people all over the world. Um, they care about it and they see it as a, a worthwhile thing to look after. Why are wildlife corridors so important? Many Australian uh, birds in particular uh, are highly mobile and nomadic in the way they move around. So they don't, most Australian birds which uh, move around aren't as migratory as is the case in sort of most other continents in the world. They instead sort of disperse re relatively nomadically, often chasing um, where eucalypt flowers uh, happen to be regionally abundant at any time. And species such as swift parrot, regent honeyeater and the like are classic examples of that. So they need to move around over big landscapes and really the only way they can move around over those landscapes successfully is by retaining intact vegetation and allowing them to move through corridors of land um, to to live out that lifestyle and the life they simply don't have a, an option b in terms of uh, becoming sedentary um, you need those species need to take advantage of the ebb and flow of resources across the landscape um, so corridors are really critical for 
species that move around a lot. They're also really critical for maintaining genetic diversity in populations. And they'll also become more critical in the future as species need to move their ranges in response to um, climate change. So many species now occur in places where 10, 20 years hence, they won't be able to persist. Um, so they do need to actually naturally disperse over decadal scales to better cope with uh, the impacts of climate change. And it's not only animals, um, you know, essentially vegetation has to move as well, or we have to help move them. I was really lucky in my life and have been always to um, live much of my life in, in nature. I was brought up largely or partly in um, Alpine Australia, uh, northeastern Victoria, in a place where there were almost no other children, a very small village where there were almost no other children, and I spent almost all my daytime in bushland. So I, I, it seeped into me, um, nature. And to me, um, I don't really understand music, I don't understand art, but I know when I go, into a, go to a concert with somebody who does, the richness of that experience is so much greater than what I can uh, understand if I go to a gallery with somebody who understands art. Again, it's the dimensions, the richness, the quality of the experience is much greater if you can understand, if you get the tone, the, the paintwork, etc. In nature, it's the same thing. It's almost like learning a different language. If you, the more you understand about nature, the more you get from it when you go go there you understand what, what birds are calling what the scratches on the ground mean what the tr names of the trees are um, when fruit is available or not available so it's an added dimensional quality of nature that you get from um, understanding it um, and it's really important to that quality of living in the bush or of understanding it is is gives you much appreciation i think and, and much joy every species in the world has its own beauty, its own idiosyncrasies, um, and the more you see of them and the more you understand them, the, the more you can appreciate them. Thank you to Professor James Watson, Murray MacDonald, and Professor John Wanowski. Thanks to the AWC for the full talk, which will be linked to this podcast. Music tonight was Gaudete by David Harbottle, Mother Earth by Auntie Ruby Sims and Rachel Hoare, and The Flames of History by David Rovix. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. Play another game of Scrabble. Rallies have to wait. Even the most dedicated aren't out to demonstrate. Maybe packing their belongings or helping others do the same. Almost missing all the tear gas before the fires came. They call this the city of bridges, but if we get the cue to evacuate due north, there are only two. Will this place exist tomorrow? It's just a mystery. As we're living through the flames of history, Another game of Scrabble.
follow every tweet of anyone who might be vaguely related to the beat. Say sorry to the kids for always looking at my phone. This alerts app doesn't work, no message and no tone. If you don't have a way to fly, there's nowhere much to go. Just look out at the horizon, hope not to see it glow. Will this place exist tomorrow? It's just a mystery. As we're living through the flames of history. Play another game of Scrabble. Put the kids to bed. 